0: This is Canada Talks Archery, and I'm your host, Kelly Taylor. Welcome to the wide, wild world of flinging arrows. Canada Talks Archery is proud to be sponsored by PSE Archery. Check out their latest bows, the Super X and the Evolve at psearchery.com. And today we're joined by Canadian archer extraordinaire, Chris Perkins. Chris, welcome to Canada Talks Archery. Yeah, thank you for having me. So, um, we set this up when we were in Yankton at the Rushmore Rumble. And then uh, in the interim, you went and did something crazy. You uh, actually won Iowa.
1: Congratulations. I did, yes. Thank how you. Did that, how did that go? Good. I mean, I've won that event uh, four times now, uh, which is the most wins I've had at, uh, at a single event. Um, I just, I really like the format there. We shoot two different styles, uh, both Saturday, Sunday. Um, or you have an option to shoot Friday. Um, I chose to shoot the Friday evening line just With the circumstances of the weather, a lot of people had to cancel the Friday evening line and then could possibly make it at a later line on Saturday. So I was willing to give up my spot because I arrived the day early, uh, shot Friday evening, uh, which is a uh, indoor nationals uh, five spot round, uh, the blue and white face. And then uh, basically day off Saturday and uh, did a little bit of practicing, make sure everything was good for the Vegas rounds. And the Vegas round was Sunday, um, and they do things a little differently there. Uh, kind of the same as the Lancaster Classic, uh, they score X's as 11. So um, people that are not really familiar with the the whole 690 score or what that actually means is um, the five spot round there again scored a little differently. X's are sixes there, and then um, yeah, the X round on the Vegas round is scored 11, so that's where you get the uh, the 690 total.
0: For for those who are unaware, I mean, you won it outright. Um, I did oh, win
1: it outright, yeah.
0: Yeah, tell us what that means, because you know, for a lot of people, they're, they're going, "Hey, look, you know, back in my day, you won or you didn't win. What's this win outright stuff?"
1: Yeah, so win outright. Um, obviously, I shot a perfect 690 to 690, um, which I believe they had said had only been done one other time. Um, I'm not 100% sure on that. I can't really confirm, um, but uh, that tournament has been running for 30 years, um, and like I said, they uh, they said. You know, six ninety has only been done possibly one other time, um, but yeah, when it, when in an event outright is is something that is not really done all too often now, um, the uh, the level of competition is just far exceeded what I think anybody could ever think. You know, it could it could be at. Right. Um, you know, obviously, people that are familiar with Vegas and Indoor Nationals, I mean, those rounds there's been. Geez, I don't know. Like twenty plus people shoot clean on a weekend, so then you have your your shoot off basically sudden death situations. Um, and yeah, I was fortunate enough to uh, to be able to win uh, Iowa outright uh, with a, I believe it was a two point buffer. So yeah, it's it it's certainly um, it's certainly awesome. It, it's it's humbling at the same time to be able to shoot uh, a perfect score and not to, and not miss an X. So, yeah,
0: yeah. Um, I know the week prior in uh, Yankton, uh, there were 19 people that shot clean, yep, and and went to the uh, went to the shoot off. Um, that must uh ramp up the uh, the pressure a little bit, doesn't it? When you're you know one of 19 people standing and um, it goes
1: down to X only scoring, yeah. I mean, it's it's I guess on a slightly smaller scale than Bagus, um, basically same thing, you know, you shoot a 900, you go into, uh, you go into your final, basically sudden death shoot off, but yeah, being, being one of the 19 there to shoot a perfect score and uh, shoot a pretty decent X count, I think 88 X's mm-hmm. out of 90. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. It certainly uh, boosts the confidence a little bit going into the shoot off, but yeah, it's, it, changing from regular scoring to x's has definitely added some pressure yeah
0: yeah how important is confidence when you're in that situation and i say that because um you know i get to the line in a, in a tournament like vegas or um rushmore rumble and and i'm not shooting for anything um i'm just there to have fun and and even at that i feel sort of the, the tension here in the sternum right and You feel the nerves and your hands get a little shaky. Um, But I'm wondering, when you get to a point where you're, you know, almost completely confident in your shot, does that kind of pressure go away or do you just have to find a way to shoot through it?
1: I wouldn't really. I mean it's more so nerves, I think, than pressure. I mean, obviously, yeah, there's a certain expectation. You, you try to uphold yourself. Um, you know, obviously putting yourself in that situation time and time again, certainly helps with, um, you know, the experience there, what works, what doesn't work. Um, for me, it's, it's not so much pressure. Um, I guess as an expectation standpoint uh, it's more or less just being able to handle the nerves, what I know works and what I know doesn't work. Um, But yeah, having, having confidence in your shot, uh, knowing that um, what's going to happen uh, with that shot um, certainly plays a big factor in confidence. Um, Obviously second guessing yourself, that's not necessarily going to be the best, uh, best, um, Case scenario uh, when it comes down to high intensity or high pressure situations. Um, I try and shoot to hit, not try and shoot to miss. So um, I guess that's a little bit different uh, for myself when it comes to somebody that's has the experience in that situation. Yeah. Um, you know, it's confidence, I think, is everything when it comes to being able to perform under pressure and in high pressure situations such as Vegas or essentially any shoot off, I guess.
0: Yeah. I was coaching one of our young archers. Uh, shout out to Siler Anderson Johnson um, last night. Cause he's going to Vegas for the first time. Yep. And um, you know, I, I, I encouraged our young archers to um, try and get to as many of the bigger shoots as they can. Mm-hmm you know, even if they're just entering flights or, you know, the non-competitive rounds, because it seems to me, and maybe, maybe you've got some thoughts to share on this. It seems to me the only way to learn how to shoot in a tournament
1: is by shooting in a tournament. Yeah. I mean, even, even, even as a pro, we all talk about, you know, we can shoot 330 X's all day long at, you know, whether it be your home range um a local tournament uh without having that pressure out of your comfort zone nothing really changes like you don't really like I wouldn't say you don't really advance as a shooter but there's nothing to change your perspective on things um you know like Vegas like well, I, I guess any any professional sport, no, nobody ever become pro by, you know, sitting back and just being content with where they're at, you know, um, getting to that next level. You're going to have to put yourself in that situation. You're going to have to maybe not start from the bottom, but you're going to have to start from the middle of the pack and climb your way to the top. You know, it's not, nobody come into this sport with, you know, the given pro status or a given big name, like Rio Wild, Jesse Broadwater, like those guys, like nobody got a name like that with just being content and kind of sitting back and not entering those tournaments. I know for
0: um, a lot of archers um, when they get to those tournaments, again, it's, the, it's the nerves. And um, I'm wondering if you've got any specific strategies
1: or, um, you know, getting your head in the right space. I mean, I don't really treat it as any different than, you know, practicing at home. I mean, it's 20 yards. It's the same target. It's no different. The only thing that changes is the atmosphere and the venue Um, to walk into a tournament such as Vegas and treat it differently than you would treat it shooting around at home. I mean, essentially you're already taking a step back, you know, it's not, it's not any different, you know, so there's no reason to treat it any differently For me, when it comes down to nerves or being able to control the nerves in that, it was just more or less experience, you know, um, putting myself in the high pressure situations, putting myself outside of my comfort zone. I I don't really think there's any other way to deal with that than, you know, putting yourself in a situation that you're not comfortable with. Right, right. I remember
0: um watching the video um the year that Austin was in the shoot off for the young adult championship. Yep. And um I think it was real wild was on the mic and and he was saying, you know, the the tendency of some archers when they're in this situation is they they try that little bit harder. They focus a little bit harder on that spot. They they try to aim just a little bit more and it doesn't usually work out. Right. Because you just have to kind of trust your shot and Continue with your show, shot process, regardless of the situation you're in.
1: Right. And most people, when they get into a high pressure situation, such as a shoot off, um, shoot not to miss. So, I mean, they completely change their game plan. Um, mm-hmm. Instead of shooting to hit it, um, now they have in the back of their mind, well, geez, I can't miss it, you know? So, that's like I said, that's where experience comes down to really. I guess give you that little bit more of an edge in those shootoffs is knowing how to handle it and knowing that, okay, well, yeah, there's going to be probably a little bit more movement in the pin. I'm probably going to feel slightly different, but everything else, when it boils down to base fundamentals, it's all the same.
0: Right. Right. So are you a, are you a command shooter or are you
1: a surprise oh. shooter? Nope. I'm a command. I'm not a command shooter at all. Um, <laughs> It works when it works, um, and when it doesn't, it it doesn't work. Um, for me, I, I wouldn't really say I'm a surprise shooter. Um, I have a rough idea when it's going to break, but uh, by no means am I forcing it to uh, to go off.
0: You know, a, a lot of people when they're beginning archery, um, they're told, "Okay, here's the bow, right? These are the little yep. bow glove uh, releases, right? Put the pin on the on the X, and when it's there, let it go." Yep. Right. And then that becomes a bad habit that now becomes really hard to break when you're trying to get better. Yep. Um, And uh, I I can imagine that without the experience, being able to trust the float. When you're at full draw and it's kind of, you know, doing its little thing Mm -hmm. on the X and being able to just execute the shot so that it returns to the X as it goes off, you know, that, that prior preoception or whatever it is, Turner calls it um, Mm -hmm. is, is one of the most difficult things to master.
1: Yeah. It's, I wouldn't really say it boils down to timing um, because that basically um, I would say takes a page out of a command um, shooter's book. Um, For me, I've always shot a hinge um, even in, super windy conditions. I've always worked through a back tension. I mean, I've probably shot a button, I don't know, maybe for a hundred arrows in a competition ever. Um, just if it got to a point where, you know, maybe been a team event or something, we were timed, the shot had to break, you know, stuff like that had to go relatively quickly. But for the most part, I would say about ninety-nine percent of my archery career has been with a hinge. Um, and for me, yeah, I mean, kind of touching back on, on when you had said something about a command shooter, um, or a surprise shot for, for me, like I, like I said, I think in the back of my mind, I have a subconscious timing as to when I know it's going to break so that, you know, if I do have, you know, some crazy pin float and a shoot off situation or whatever, it's not going to break out in the nine or it's not going to break out in the eight. Um, but also I would say the experience takes over too. Um, and like you said, kind of the pin, you know, going back and forth and as it's kind of returning and, and I wouldn't really say kind of driving by, but as it's returning the shuttle break, it's, I think that's just probably experience from, from all these years, but yeah.
0: Yeah. Cause you know, honestly, the one thing that I struggle with is, um, I did a camp with Penny and Lee Hedl-twit, uh okay. over Christmas. Mm-hmm. And um, she's a level three instructor for mental management systems. Yep. They, do, uh, they do form camps, you know, in, in a number of different spots. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that they did is they uh, advised me to add a half an inch to my draw length. Okay. And, and I just a few days earlier had Austin add a half an inch to my draw length. So now I'm... At an inch more draw length than I was, you know, two weeks ago. Yeah. And it was a bit of a struggle to get used to it. But now um I can really sort of feel myself uh stacking the bones, as it were, between the mm-hmm. like, inside the bow. Yep. Um and when I get it right and you know, sort of rotate the scapular until the hinge goes off, it generally lands in the X. Mm-hmm. Um the, the the problem is when it's not going off quite when you think it should. <laughs> yeah. And and then your third finger comes into play, right? Yeah. Uh the uh, trying to get over that hump is is a bit of a hurdle for me. What what are your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, I mean, draw length is is a pretty significant change, and especially, you know, you're talking, you know, an inch. Um, when I talk about draw length changes, I'm talking 16ths or 30 seconds. Um, adding, adding an inch to your draw length, it's going to take some time for sure. Um, but as you said, being able to work through the hinge and being able to work, um, through that shot a lot better and a lot easier, um, certainly helps when it comes to obviously posting good scores, but like you had said too, um, there's also that shot window that you kind of want to stay in. And when you get outside of that shot window, um, a lot of the form and a lot of your process starts to break down pretty rapidly. Um, Generally, I always recommend, you know, for somebody to draw down, start over, um, just kind of mentally reset. Um, It's not so much that you're coming out of the shot. It's just, you know, there's no point in giving away points to try and be a superhero when you still have X amount of time left on the clock that you have enough time to regroup, reset, Um, and to essentially give yourself that confidence boost that, okay, yeah, we can make everything, you know, right again, everything feels good. And like you said, especially making a big change like that, um, you're having to essentially work that confidence back up and what feels right. And what doesn't feel right. Right. Right.
0: So, uh, since we're talking about a hinge, let's give you an opportunity to make a plug here. Um, (laughs) like last year you worked with uh, Trueball Excel and you came out with the signature Chris Perkins executive hinge. um, I did, yeah. Which uh, features a a unique uh, uh, feature in that you can adjust the basically the length of the neck.
1: Correct, yeah. Yeah, Uh, how did that come about? So for me, I've always hated retying D-loops. Draw length is very, very critical for me. Um, I play quite a bit with cables and strings to get it feeling how I want. Um, Once I get the bow kind of where I want, then I'll go ahead and I'll play with D-loop lengths. The release idea um, come to me when basically, you know, I go to retie a D-loop after X amount of thousand shots out of it, or, you know, start to fray. I feel like it's time for a new one and it didn't really matter what I did. I could never really get it where it was before. I mean, I've measured them. I've used a caliper to measure them. You know, I get them close and just something always feels just a little different or, you know, you're practicing at home. It's a new bow. You go to your first tournament of the year and you're like, Mm, that doesn't feel right. You know, it feels shorter. It feels long. Being able to adjust it in the release itself gives you that versatility to make a fast adjustment um, and make it to the point where you don't have to touch setup. You won't have to touch, you know, your bare shaft or anything like that. You won't have to touch anything within the system. Um, So you're able to do it right in the, uh, right in the handle, right in the, uh, the release itself.
0: Right. So how important is it um, being
1: able to do that as opposed to twists in the cables? Yeah. So, I mean, every time you do anything to the bow, whether it be twist cables, add weight on, you know, your front or rear stab, it's going to change the tune. It's going to change um, what you've done through paper, or it's going to change what you've done with the bear shaft at, you know, whatever distances, you, you know, you do that at, but every time you make a minute change to the system itself um, it essentially could make it critical. It make, it, I mean, it could make it better, who knows, but um, obviously in a tournament situation or in the middle of a tournament um, you're not going to want to make those big changes. So being able to, like I said, change something outside of the system itself makes it easier. Um, essentially less stress on myself uh, or anybody that's using using it and uh i mean a screw a half a half a turn here or there um can make a world of difference and uh yeah can certainly clean up your score or or even make uh make things feel better
0: right so that kind of touches on the next thing i was going to ask and that is um when when your shots aren't quite landing right in a tournament and you need to get through that round um it it really is important to just i mean you're not going to go over to a bow press and start you know fiddling with your with your uh your strings or your cables or anything like that um but it's important to do whatever it takes to get as many middles as you can right like if you if, if you're having yeah. a form issue and it's causing you to go low left well move your sight low and left Mm -hmm. Right. Just make, do whatever it takes at that time to get through that round and then fix the form issue, you know, after the tournament when you're
1: back in practice. Right. Yeah. I mean, like we've, I've shot several rounds where, you know, I feel like it's good, but then, you know, middle through the round, you know, midways through the round, I feel like, you know, something is, you know, critical, whether it be me or whether it be the bow Um, I've done all sorts of changes to a bow um, in the middle of a tournament to get it to where I need it to be. Um, we're all human. We change it. We change on a daily. Um, so what works today may not work tomorrow. You just try and find something that is going to, I guess, produce time and time again, um, throughout the year, you know, being able to, I guess, have that adjustability within the release to do a, you know, a change um, is awesome. But if you need to make a bigger change, uh, you know, I mean, you can go to a bow press, you can do the cables, you can do the string. There's lots of us that have done it. I mean, like, like you said, in, in order to obtain a high X count, we may have to change things four or five times until we get it right. And like I said, you know, everybody's human, and, and we all change on a daily. So
0: yeah, yeah. Uh, one of the most impressive uh, bits of coaching I ever saw was last year in Limerick at the World Archer Youth Championships. Okay. My wife and I went there because we're hosting the next one. In winter. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I was I was sitting behind, uh, and for no particular reason, I just this is where I was sitting. I was behind the uh, Moldovan archers. And okay. it was a recurve and something happened. I think there were like a, a few strands broke on this one archer string. Mm-hmm. So the Moldovan coach grabbed the bow and during scoring was able to, um, you know, clamp in her legs, get the string off, put a new string on and probably about four or five times, undo the string, twist it, put it back on until the brace height was right. Mm-hmm. And she was able to give the, the bow back to the archer in time for the next round. That was I thought yeah. that was pretty impressive. Yeah. Yeah. So um when you're getting a new bow ready um because you just switched from the TRX, was it a 38 or 36? Yeah, thirty-eight, forty. 38, uh, I shot 40. Them yeah, so from the TRX to the title, the new one. Yeah, Matthew's title. Um, mm-hmm. What What's
1: your process for getting a bow ready? Uh, it can be a long process. It can be a short process. <laughs> uh, for me, uh, like I said, uh, draw length is pretty critical um, for how I want things to feel. So I'll work with that first. Um, once I get the bow feeling as far as draw length, where I need it to be. I'll then work from the draw length. I'll go to the stabilizers. Once I get the stabilizers where I need them to be, then I'll go work on an arrow setup or multiple arrow setups. Um, just basically doing a lot of testing, trying to figure out what it likes, what it doesn't like. But for me, I think the probably the most time uh, spent on one aspect would be would pr- probably be stabilizers. Um, I can get my draw length where it needs to be and where I feel comfortable and where I want it to be pretty quick. Um, I've kind of been right around 29 and 3 16 to 29 and a quarter uh, for the last couple of years. So depending on, you know, depending on axle to axle length, that may change a little bit uh, just because of string angle. But uh, I think what I spend a lot of time on is stabilizers, getting the pin float or even trying to get it to stop, uh, kind of how I want throughout my whole shot process.
0: Right, right.
1: Um,
0: how close to the formula for stabilizers do you get? Like They
1: say you know, equal torque at the front as at the back? Yeah, I mean, I don't really follow a formula. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I just kind of add weight, take weight off, change angles. Um, like I said, until I get the pin movement how I want. To be honest, I don't even know what's on my title right now. I'm probably pretty equal front and back. Um, actually, this year I'm running my rear bar quite a bit lower um, angle-wise than what I would normally run. Uh, generally, it's pretty level, maybe you know 20, 20 to 25 degrees on a down angle. Um, this year it's quite a bit down, probably closer to 45 Um, and I just found with the title, it just seemed to be where it likes um to be, and where it gave the best bow reaction upon fire um for me. But if I had to guess, there's probably twenty three ounces on the front, and probably nineteen twenty on the back.
0: Yeah yeah well it's pretty telling that you've experimented so much you don't even really know what's on it
1: (laughs) yeah I mean and and there again like I said you know kind of touching back on on saying that we change on a day-to-day I mean what I shot in Rushmore to what I shot in Iowa might have been an ounce maybe an ounce and a half difference just enough that there was a small enough change there that I could see the difference in pin movement Um, but I don't like, I mean, I don't take off and add on a ton of weight at one time I'll spend, you know, I might spend a better part of a week on one particular setup. You know, a lot of people, they just add weight here and there all the time, whether it be one arrow or two arrows in, and that doesn't really give you enough time to really see if it's going to make a big difference. And when I say I I change angles on the rear stab or the front stab I'll change it maybe a degree or two at a time until, you know, I see, I might see a change. I may not see a change. I may have to go quite a ways before I actually see some improvement versus over, you know, it might not improve at all, but for me, it's a a little wait at a time, spend some time with that and see if it actually is going to give me what I want. And then, you know, essentially go from there. Right, right. How often do you make a change and go, oh, that wasn't good? Um, When I'm trying to figure a bow out, I may add, like I said, I may go big, add an ounce or two, maybe even three ounces at a time. Um, And if I don't see an instant change with that, I may add another ounce or two on it until I see a big drastic change in it. Or like you said, it, it, it may not work at all. I may work backwards or I may change the angle of it. Um, but I also pay attention to mass weight too. Um, you know, when you start shooting 60 arrow, uh, rounds for score that take two and a half, three hours, um, it takes, it takes a lot out of you, especially if you have a bow that's too heavy um, that essentially could hurt you during your round. So obviously i try and balance both having enough weight and to basically stabilize the system. And then also not having too much weight to where I fatigue myself.
0: Right. Right. Um, which brings me to another question and that is, you know, sometimes you'll hear an archer, um, you know, a relatively new archer, you know, looking at the amount of weight that Mike Schlusser or uh Austin or Chris Schaff have on their bows and go oh that's yep. what I need and
1: that's a mistake isn't it yeah it's <laughs> there's a lot of things that can uh, that can hurt a new archer um stabilizer weight obviously being one of them um you know even even for myself 23 ounces on a front bar it's pretty substantial like that's that's quite a bit of weight I think up until I have to really think about this now uh, up until probably 2011, 2011. I think when I won the world championships, I was running 12 and 12 and at that time it was a lot of weight. Um, but I think probably 2010 and before I may have had a total of five ounces, (laughs) maybe six ounces total on the bow. Yeah. And, and even if you look back, you know, you go back 15 years, it was all the same. Everybody had the same thing, you know, everybody didn't have a lot of weight. Um, The stabilizers were super spongy, like that, the whole feel of a lot of weight and a stiff stabilizer has really come on in the last 10 10 years and like you said somebody that's coming up into the sport seeing that on a lot of the pros um, stabilizers or their bows or or anything like that um, they automatically assume that I need a lot of weight on there in order for you know me to shoot a good score essentially right Um, because I mean the, the thing about having a lot of weight
0: you know especially when it's 30 inches out the front and you know 12 or 15 inches out the back is is that if if you're not if you're not super proficient in your target acquisition that ends up being a lot of weight you have to move to get your pin yep. to the middle isn't it yep um, and the same so,
1: as if you're shooting like 50 meter feet of stuff like everybody's like oh you got to add the weight for the wind well that can be okay and that can be bad at the same time because i mean once that system starts moving it's going to take a lot to get that system to stop moving Right. Right. It's inertia again. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's, it, it's, like I said, for, for me, it's a balance, you know, I try and find something that, you know, I can shoot 300 arrows or 400 arrows a day and not feel fatigued by just trying to hold the bow up. Right. Right. Um, so, uh, so how, how steady is your dot when you're,
0: once you've acquired I float. In, one, I float
1: inside of Vegas 10.
0: Yeah. All right, that's uh, that, that's good for you know a lot of people that are worried. Oh,
1: it's not it's not stopping, All right? I can sometimes get it to stop, but I would say probably about ninety nine percent of the time uh, it's moving. Um, obviously, you want that movement to be subtle. Like for me, I don't want it to be like super erratic. I want it to be slow but I want it to be fast enough that it returns to the middle if that makes any sense
0: right and that also factors into uh stabilizer weights too because yep it makes that much harder for for it to naturally move back into the center as well
1: yep yeah I'm in stabilizer weight stabilizer lengths um the longer it's out there the if you're running a down degree or if you're running it straight out of the bow um basically all you're doing is you're changing leverages Um, same with angles on the, on the rear stab, um, you're changing a leverage. Basically you're, you're wanting it to cant the bow back to the center of the bubble, obviously. Um, but also with it doing that, you're also adding torque to the system too. Right. So yeah, it's a big, it's when it comes to stabilizer, it's a big balance game essentially. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about one of your
0: one of the biggest moments in your career and um it's something that you didn't know happened until about nine months later yeah and you know, I was winning Vegas, right yeah so talk about that how how did that come about like uh, I mean obviously you you lost the last round to to Bobby Eiler and um then drug testing came back and all of a sudden you're on the top
1: yeah it's it's certainly a uh, a weird deal um obviously we've never had uh, anything like that happen in in previous vagases um or even i guess you know previous archery tournaments in general um yeah i mean it's i guess it was probably yeah i guess it was probably october Maybe nine, 10 months, somewhere in there, like you said. Yeah. Um, until I uh, received the phone call um, from NFAA Bruce. And yeah, basically congratulating me on on winning Vegas um, back in 2018, I guess it was now. So <laughs> it seems so- like yesterday, but it's also quite a while ago. Yeah. Yeah. So what was your reaction? I was, what was I doing? I was changing the oil on the tractor and I got a phone call, um, that come up on my phone, uh, from Yankton, South Dakota. And I don't know too many people from Yankton, South Dakota. So I kind of had a rough idea on who it was. Um, and then, yeah, like I said, Bruce was on the other, other end of the line. And like I said, basically congratulating me and it was more like just like a holy crap moment, I think. <laughs> Yeah, um, more than anything, um, but also kind of a disappointment at the same time. Um, and what I mean by that is just not really having that glory moment um, on the, yeah, shoot-off floor. the podium.
0: And, you know.
1: Yeah, like like, like there, there was a bunch of things that's obviously being stripped from um, when it comes to having that moment of a Vegas champion. So, you know, and and I think a lot of people's reaction, too, was, well, you know, you got the money. Well, for me, like, I'm not in the sport for the money. Um, You know, I I love doing what I'm doing. Um, But that was, to me, like, I mean, money is a disposable thing. Um, But to go back on a memory such as that and how big that tournament is, I just never did – I never did get that moment, you know, right. I mean, fingers crossed that eventually someday I do, but um, yeah. just at that time. Yeah. I think for me, it was a bit of a disappointment at the same time. Well, and um, you know, not, not to, not to completely rain on
0: Bobby Eilers' parade. Um, I think he got some bad advice. Um, I think he could have had a therapeutic use exemption for the polypropanol, but I don't think, or propopanol. i I guess it's called i don't know those, those drug names are so hard to pronounce yeah um, the beta blocker <laughs> right yes um so I he was advised not to not to even apply for a tue on the on the beta blocker um which may have helped but i don't think it would have helped him on the thc right so
1: yeah i mean i don't i, I don't really know the whole process on that um i mean being a past world champion uh being on Adams, whereabouts program, stuff like that, where basically, I mean, they can test me at any time, um, for X number of months, I guess, I think for me, I think I was like 24 months, so like two years I was on that. Um, and yeah, I mean, they showed up. Um, but as far as like the, the, the TUE therapeutic use exemption forms, like I don't, I don't really know the process. I've heard the processes on that. And from what I've heard, it's quite an ordeal. But, yeah, I mean, i I didn't really read through the entire court documents. Um, obviously, like I said, like you had said, um, it was in months of arbitration with that with the nFAA and and his lawyers and and so on and so forth. So I don't really know the entire details, right, but, yeah, I mean, could it it could it have been avoided? I have no idea. Um, but I think, like you said, just yeah, some bad advice, and it was just you know, an unfortunate circumstance. So,
0: um, like from our standpoint as uh outside observers, um, we didn't really know anything until we saw the press release come up from the NFAA, right? Um, did you have any inkling something was happening until you heard from Bruce?
1: Oh, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. I was uh, I returned home. Monday from Vegas and I was tested Tuesday. So, I mean, I had only shot one other event that year in France, uh, the Nimes tournament that was a testing event. And I kind of knew that they weren't going to come and test me a month later, um, for an event that happened. And so, yeah, I mean, that right off the hop, that kind of, you know, raised some suspicion as to what was going on. I mean, they didn't really give me any details. They just said it was ordered from World Archery and that was it. I mean, they come, they tested me and I didn't hear a lick of anything until Bruce called me.
0: Right. Okay, cool. Um, It's something that, uh, you know, it's, it's worth pointing out that it's taken very seriously in archery. Um, and, uh, you know, it was driven home, uh, a couple months back when, um, we're, we're lying in bed and all of a sudden the doorbell rings at, uh, 10 to seven in the morning. And, yep. uh, person says, hi, I'm from the, uh, Canadian center for ethics and sports is Austin Taylor here.
1: <laughs> yeah
0: And, uh, yeah, sure enough, he was, you know, 10 minutes later, he was peeing yep. into a cup.
1: yeah Yeah. I've been tested here at home. Uh, well, actually I was tested last year, uh, just before October, I think. Um, and I've been tested at home probably, uh, four or five times now. I don't know how many times I've been tested overall at world archery events, uh, world cups and stuff like that. But, uh, yeah, I mean, here at home, it's been at least almost a handful of times.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, anyone coming through
1: the process, uh,
0: coming up through the system needs to know that um, it's, uh, it's something they watch very closely.
1: Yeah. And, it, and like what they test for um, and the amounts that they test for is so minute that anything, you know, cross-contamination will show up. And I mean, it's, and it's something that, um, you know, obviously we try and be super careful um, where we eat and kind of keep track of stuff like that. Um, and it, and it's happened, it's happened, you know, a few times it's happened a couple of years ago where, you know, a couple of shooters were, um, were tested and it come back positive positive. and it is a stressful process, um, from what I've heard, um, you know, fortunate enough, I've never had any issues. Um, I've never had anything come back, you know, I take, you know, a multivitamin daily, um, so like stuff like that, like, and especially a multivitamin, um, those companies, they have so much run through those facilities that, like I said, the, the amount or how small of an amount that they test for anything, any little cross-contamination could result in a, uh, a failed test.
0: Yeah. The, the, uh, the opportunity for an inadvertent failed test is, uh, is incredible.
1: Yeah, it, it's it's yeah. very high. If yeah. if you yeah. you look at the you look at the data behind it, it's it's extremely sensitive. I guess you could say. Yeah, yeah.
0: Okay. Well, um, let's let's wrap it up here by uh, giving you a chance to talk about probably your favorite subject, um, your new boat. Yeah. Um, uh, we we mentioned
1: earlier that you switched from the TRX to the title this year. How how is that working out for you? The title is a fantastic bow. Um, It's a completely different system than we've seen from Matthews. Um, Obviously the TRX line has been around for quite a few years now, since at least 2017, maybe even earlier on. Um, I joined the team back in 2018. Um, I've had huge success with the TRX line and, you know, I love that system, love that bow. Um, And then having the opportunity to work with them, um, and seeing what they had in the works for this year, um, was something that we had never really seen before, um, from them. So completely new riser, um, obviously completely new limbs, a uh, limb system from them. And then obviously new cams. So, I mean, they basically built this bow from ground up. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's probably, and I'm not not trying to give a biased opinion by any means, but it is probably one of the easiest and most forgiving bows that I've shot uh, to date. Um, system is super rigid, super stable, um, and it's something that uh, I think I'm going to get along with.
0: Yeah, yeah, okay. So when we talked in Yankton, you, you, I would asked you, you know, are are you um, do you prefer the aggressive cams? And you said you
1: do. Um, yeah, for my shooting style, I prefer something that's going to pull on me a little bit more. Um, so obviously a little bit less, um, percentage on holding weight. So I try and run anywhere between either a really low 70 or a, a high 60. Um, I'm probably, well, I'm shooting 60 and a half pounds right now. And I believe I'm holding right around 21 and a half, almost 22 pounds of holding weight. Right. And and I've heard a few people say um, that
0: the new title cams um, are some of the more aggressive cams that are out there. Um, maybe a little bit more than the SVX
1: or the M2s from PSE. Do, do do you find that they're they're certainly racy? Um, and what I mean by that is like they're they're snappy on the back end. Um, I wouldn't necessarily compare them to an SVX or an M2, Uh, both of those cams are pretty rigid right from the start. Um, And that just means like when you say you're shooting 60 pounds on both of those cam systems, you know, you're shooting 60 pounds. Um, I find with the, uh, with the new cam on the title, um, it's pretty neutral kind of once you start It, it, it stacks up quick but it also just kind of plateaus out until you kind of get to the back end. So it's a super smooth cam. I wouldn't say it's super, super aggressive, but it definitely gives you that versatility uh, when it comes to module uh, choices um, to have basically what you want in the back wall. Like, you know, do you want it to be super snappy, which is something I prefer. I'm running a 70% mod. Um, Do you want to have a little bit of forgiveness in the back end? um, You know, and they offer up to an 80% mod. But yeah, I mean, as far as as far as comparing it to an M2 or an SBX, I wouldn't say it's that harsh, but it definitely is more aggressive than their uh, CCT cam that's on their TRX line.
0: Right. And, you know, for anyone who doesn't quite understand the terminology, when we say aggressive, that's where it really doesn't give you a lot of opportunity to leak from the back wall before it starts right it's true right
1: yeah i mean it 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 essentially wants to go all the time
0: Mm -hmm.
1: yeah yeah Yeah. um so do you find yourself a a bone stacker as
0: Paige pierce might call it do you like really get into the middle of the bow?
1: yeah i mean when i come back to full draw and i i hit that back wall um there's there's a couple videos online that you can probably see of me uh, going through my shot process if you watch my rear elbow it actually will stack behind me and basically what I'm doing is I'm preloading into the back end so I guess you could call that bone stacking yeah yeah um because
0: I wonder if, if people that are having problems with an aggressive cam uh pulling them out of their out of their back wall if, mm-hmm. if the issue is a form issue and that they're not getting into the right alignment they're not they're not sort of locking
1: that elbow behind them like you say yeah, I mean, there's there's probably quite a bit to it um, versus, like you said, getting the elbow directly behind. Um, I find a lot of people, um, whether it be, you know, shooting a button or shooting a hinge, I think more so with hinge shooters, they want that relaxed relax shot, and they just – they don't feel that pressure change in the back end. And, yeah, I mean, a more aggressive cam is going to want to – I'm not going to say it's going to want to rip, rip your shoulder out, but it's going to certainly want to come off that back wall and a lot of shooters and especially new shooters, um, it's probably not the best system uh, for them, which, like I said, that's why Matthews gives you the option of of running a higher percentage module, um, you know, 80%, um, on their target bows um, and all the way down to 70%. So uh, you're going to find something in that, you know, that is probably going to suit your desired, I guess, shooting form. Essentially, Uh, just for me, my shooting style, I like something super aggressive, keeps me way more positive on the back end. And I think I get away with a lot more. All right. Very good,
0: Chris. uh, Anything else you wanted to say?
1: I think we covered quite a bit of it.
0: (laughs) We did. Yeah, it's been a great podcast. And uh, thanks very much for being on Canada Talks Archery. And um, we'll see you in Vegas. All right. Thank you.